So you want your Bible open to 1 Peter. Or you want to scroll your iPad to 1 Peter or something. I greet you. Welcome. Glad to greet you again. Thankful for the time of worship that we just enjoyed together and the diligence of those who prepared us for that. Uh, I want to greet those of you who are watching online. We have a large group of people who are watching online from here and there, and we welcome you to, to Bethel. We hope that one day you can join us. Thank you, Pastor Neil. Where is there? Pastor Neil Vite for your ministry in the Word last week? Um, you're a great blessing to Bethel Church in so many ways. You're teaching your leadership. We're so grateful for you. Um, very, very thankful for the message last week, and it was a blessing to I, I had to wait to watch it because normally when I speak out of town, I, I listen to it on the way back, but I had guests with me, so I got to listen to it, watch it actually later, so we're blessed to be able to do that. This is a significant week for me. Um, Leo, this wouldn't really be a big deal to you, Pastor Leo Cummings, but this is the beginning of year five for me. I did the numbers, and if I, if I can pastor until I'm 87, I will equal how long you've been here. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we have been blessed, uh, Lois and I, far beyond what we could have imagined. And I have an active imagination uh, in the last four years here. As we start our fifth year, thank you, Bethel people. Bless you. I love you. Bethel elders, thank you. I love you. Bless you. So grateful for all of you, Bethel deacons and and uh, team members, and I bless you, thank you, I love you, and I'm grateful to be here. So um, during this time, uh, I have opened God's Word, obviously every week to you, taught and preached and exhorted to the best of my ability for the good of your souls and for our church and for your family. When I came here, I had no idea that I would actually preach off the roof of my study for a season. I had no idea that would happen. You could smell fires burning. You could hear airplanes. Sometimes we had to stop and wait for a plane to drone over. It was not something I planned, but it was kind of fun. And then instead of amens, you would beep your horns. And I thought maybe the neighbors would be upset, but they didn't. They weren't upset. They often came. Some of them came and continued to, uh, to come to things. I had no idea that I would preach all summer through the book of Philippians, a series that I call the Bethel Wheel, outdoors on a trailer, on a, on a trailer outside. And I'm so grateful for everybody who worked so hard to make that work. It was a lot of uh, work and a lot of ingenuity and uh, a lot of determination. Uh, my part was super easy and fun. I had no idea I would do that, but this is what I did know. I knew that every week I was not going to tell you my opinion or give you a speech or talk, but I was going to open this book and to the best of my ability teach you from this book. And this is, this is what I've done. And so sometimes preaching is like good nutrition. Maybe you do expository messages through a whole book of the Bible and you just say, it's going to be good for him. Just, it's the word. So we just, we open our Bible and we teach it and we go to the next chunk and then we go to the next chunk. We don't say, well, you need this. We just say, you need the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and the providence of God determines what the people need. And it is amazing to see how often just preaching through a book of the Bible. And so, 
I preached through the book of Romans when I first came, called it the heart of the Christian faith, kind of a high flyover of the book of Romans. Someday we'll go back through it slowly. I preached through the book of James, called it real faith. I preached through the story of Jonah, called it the Jonah story. Um, preached through the book of Titus, maybe you remember, called it the little red book of church. Preached through Philippians, called it the Bethel wheel. Preached through the first chapter of Ephesians, uh, called it R-W-Y-A, remember whose you are. If you want a deep dive in Ephesians, come at 9.30 on Sunday morning. Pastor Leo is teaching through the book of Ephesians. We have two other adult classes uh, teaching through Acts, teaching through Jeremiah. If you're not here in the 9.30 hour, can I say it nice? You are squandering a great opportunity because we have gifted Bible teachers who are passionate about what they teach and they work hard at it. They're a gift to the church. We're so grateful for them. And you get that small group experience where you can ask questions. Or, and so if you, if you just get up a little earlier or get here a little sooner, be here in the 930 hour. And in the 930 hour, we also have classes for every age and a nursery. Um, we just can't think of a rule, a better way of doing that. And so I would say if you're out of the 930 habit, can I just encourage you to try it for a while? Try for the next uh, eight or ten years, and if it works for you. Um, I, I grew up on that, and it was good for me. Look, look at the wonderful man I've become. So, <laughs> in spite of that, you should come at 9.30. Then I, I, I preached um, through the Sermon on the Mount, called it Jesus People. I preached through the book of Joel, uh, Repentance and Refreshing. And I, it was my privilege to preach through the entire book of Revelation in 35 brief messages. <laughs> Sometimes I preach through biblical messages on various texts with a particular aim. My dad taught me this. He said, sometimes, Ken, you use the Bible like an apothecary. A pastor can preach through a book of the Bible and just like good nutrition, you'll get what you need. But then there are other times when a minister of the word or a pastor is going to recognize a need in the congregation and then, and, and then go to the scriptures and teach the scriptures on that need. Or, or, or he might recognize a particular topic like the Holy Spirit and he might go different places in the Bible. This also is biblical preaching, uh, topical or textual or thematic preaching. And I've done some of that too. I toggle, if you, if you pay attention, I toggle back and forth between the two uh, methods I did a series of messages early on called The Treasure of Good Things. And by the way, I'm saying this so that you'll just have a feeling of the direction that we take here and, and what you put yourself under when you come uh, to Bethel Church. And also because they're archived on people have done the diligent work to video and record them and, and archive them. And so you can use them in your ministry to other people or you can go back to be refreshed. And people often do that. And I hear about that. So it's kind of neat. I mean, not just my mom. My mom does that, but other people sometimes too. Um, then I also did a series called a Grow, Growing a Family with a Lifelong Love for God out of Deuteronomy. That was kind of expository as well, Deuteronomy 6. I did a series of messages called Crafting a Holy Life, which were things that came out of my life as I've struggled against sin and to please God in my, my life and, and obeying Him. I did a series called Angels, Demons, God, and You. I did a series called Building Better Relationships, Knowing God by Heart, Can We Trust the Bible? Of course, there were the rooftop sermons, which defy categorization. And then the most recent series of messages called 
between the fires. So a great deal of thought and prayer has gone into the menu here at Bethel Pulpit, as I'm sure you can tell. And maybe you're asking the question, so what's cooking now? Every once in a while. My wife makes candles. Some of you probably know that. And they smell, sometimes they smell pretty, but lots of times they smell like food. Coffee, banana bread. Which is kind of a mixed blessing when you get home and you go, oh, banana bread. It's a candle. Like, <laughs> can't eat it. So, but it smells like it would be good. Maybe, that, maybe that's the question you're asking. And, and we're going to First Peter, and you might wonder, why are we going to First Peter? Well, First Peter is a, a wonderful epistle of the Bible, God's Word, inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. And First Peter is about enduring suffering faithfully. Now, the heat is steadily being turned up on Bible-believing Christians. You know that. This is true in your, where you work. This is true with our people. The heat is being turned up in America on Bible-believing Christians. And Christians around the world, in many places, are being persecuted unto death, even right now. You see, there's more persecution against Christians now than there ever has been. More people spill their blood, lay down their lives because they're Christians around the world. Here in America, we're facing increasing pressure. Pressure is growing into misunderstanding of Christians. Misunderstanding is growing into contempt. Contempt one day will probably become outright persecution. Peter is going to talk about various trials early on. Most Bible scholars believe that while Peter is writing the letter, the various trials turn into fiery trials. He initially starts to write to them, I know you're under some pressure. Later on, and there's a historic story about this that we'll tell later, things change and the pressure becomes intense. And he, calls, he then talks about fiery trials. And it may well be that our misunderstandings that people have against us will be turned to pressure and discrimination and eventually persecution. And frankly, the misunderstandings and the, and the pressures that we've endured in the last couple of years have shown us something. And if you're honest, what, one thing it will show you is that we haven't really done very well under the pressure. I mean, some things are good. I commend you about how quickly you uh, changed and were willing to do what you needed to do in order to serve the Lord faithfully, in order to gather as Christians, in order to practice Christian life. But let's face it, we, we don't like it when people misunderstand us. Sometimes we go on Facebook and we make a real fiery post about it, which really isn't anywhere in this epistle. I looked for it. <laughs> I'm not sure the church is ready for real persecution. But by the Spirit, we have a book written to brothers and sisters in a, in a very difficult situation. And that's the book that we're going to study so we, prepare, we will be prepared if we are required to suffer for our faith. In the meantime, all of us will endure hardship. All of us will endure trials. All of us will have suffering. This is the way it is. Somebody said, uh, life is good. You, you've seen a little thing. and I, my, my wife, almost every morning of her life, gets up and puts on a shirt with a, with a positive sentiment on it. She's a glass half full girl on one day. And I, I love that. And when, when she sometimes gets those shirts from a company called Life is Good. But she and I both know truth of the matter is life isn't good. 
we live in a broken, fallen world, and God is good. But life is, so life is hard, but, but God is good. And that's what we're going to see here. And so, in Paul's, excuse me, in Peter's uh, letter to people that are under this persecution, or they're going to face this persecution or suffering, he, we're, we're going to uh, take a look at the first couple of verses today, and we'll get no farther than that. They're, they're very rich. So let me read again the first couple of verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. They're elect. He calls them elect, which is a very special term that was, uh, to this point, was often used about who? God's people Israel. That was a special term that God used continuously for his own people. They're my chosen, what? My chosen people. They're my elect. God often called his people elect. Very common. But now Peter is writing to a group that's not altogether Jewish. They're Jewish and Gentile. And he's calling them elect. Why does he do that? That's a question. And then he calls them exiles. And they're spiritual exiles. He's really saying they're spiritual exiles. He's not saying, and he calls them from the dispersion, and that dispersion word is also a word used for Jewish people. Why does he do this? Because what, he's, what Peter is doing here right from the beginning is he's saying to this cluster of churches in Asia Minor, south of the Black Sea, modern Turkey, he says to this cluster of churches where this letter would go like an encyclical, they would go from, from one church to another. He, he's saying to them, he's using terms you would use with God's beloved people, to describe the church or an expression of the church. He's saying, you're like a dispersion, even though they weren't dispersed in that sense. They're spread out. He says, you're elect, kind of like Israel. You're elect special to God. This is what the heart of this uh, introduction is going to say. And he's saying, you're, you're elect and you're exiles, me, not meaning that you, you're like Jews that are in Babylon, but like you're Christians in the world and so you're pilgrims, and that's what the word, word, word means. So again, this is why he's using this language. John R.W. Stott, he wrote, he writes to those who already feel the scorn and the malice of an unbelieving world. And I would say, if you don't feel the scorn, the malice, at least the misunderstanding of an unbelieving world, you're probably not doing your Christianity right. Because if you are, you're going to feel... I love people. I love humanity. I love the world that I live in. I milk all the joy and life out of it I can. But, but their, their God is a different God than my God. They believe a different thing than I believe. I'm in exile here. I'm a pilgrim here. But I am elect. That's what he's saying. Now, who is Peter? We could talk for hours about who Peter was. The Bible fully develops the character of Peter. And I would suggest that it would be amazing, uh, fruitful thing for you to study Peter and just go through the Bible and the, and the, and the uh, Gospels. And then, of course, in the early chapters of the book of Acts and just read the Peter stories. Just read them. And it's amazing. And he's a fascinating character to follow, a fascinating character to study. So Peter... So I'll just tell you a little bit about Peter each time we talk about this and we talk about the backstory. Of course, Peter was one of the first, if not the first, disciple of Jesus. That Jesus called Peter was a fisherman. And when you think fisherman, you probably should think these were rugged men. 
Um, these were hardworking men. These are men, like you ever shake hands with a man and you can tell he works for a living? He doesn't work by talking for a living. He shake hands like that guy. I shook hands over here in the front row with a fellow and I said, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm a mason. I'm like, yeah. He worked with his hands. You could tell, I think if you shook Peter's hand, you could tell that he worked with, with, with nets and, and with, with rowing and, and it was physical and it was outdoor labor. Yes. And the way that Peter wrote wasn't scholarly. He wasn't a scholar in the technical sense of the word, but he, was, but he had a very variegated vocabulary. And his vocabulary had many places in the writings of Peter are words that aren't used anywhere else. So he, had, so he was verbal, and he, had a, he was smart, and he had a business that wasn't like one of the fisher guys, but a fishing business, if you will. And when, I, when, when Lois and I visited his adopted hometown. He was from Bethsaida, but then he moved to Capernaum, and he had this fishing business in Capernaum that employed others as well, and he had probably the largest house in town. And today, there's a church built over it, which is very gaudy. It looks like a spaceship, but it is kind of cool because it has a glass bottom, so you can step on this thick glass and look down into Peter's house. Peter wasn't just your common working guy, but he was a businessman. Fishing was a big business in Capernaum. Jesus called Peter to himself, and Peter tended to be a leader. He tended to stand out in a group. He wasn't necessarily the best guy there, but he was just by, probably by force of personality, by being verbal, by being spontaneous. He was a guy who he would get himself into situations that other people didn't have the, the spontaneity to get themselves into, but then he would sometimes get himself into situations where he would actually receive a, a, a rebuke or he would be censored. And you could see the growth in his life. Jesus meets him and Jesus says to Peter, who do they say that I am? Who do you think I am, Peter? Peter answers right, and this is given to him by God. This is in Caesarea Philippi, jumping into the middle of one of the Peter stories. Peter answers Jesus right. You're the son of the living God. And, and he says, you know, Jesus says to Peter, that was revealed to you from heaven. And then a little bit later on, Jesus says he's going to die. You know the story. And Peter rebukes Jesus. Probably not a really good, that wasn't his best. That wasn't his finest hour right there. He rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. So Peter has that. You know those stories. It's fascinating. What's interesting to me is that the first thing Jesus does with Peter is he says, tell me, or one of the early things he says, tell me who I am. Who do you think I am? Jesus wants Peter to, significant, to think about his identity. And then immediately he says, Peter, he gives Peter another name, and he calls him the rock. And, and, he, and he says in, in language that we'll have to talk about later. He says, on this rock, I'll build my church. There's some significance. So why does he call Peter the rock? And you can see in Peter's life, you can see Peter's growth. You can also, even toward the end of his life, you can still see his weakness. But we shouldn't look at Peter as a buffoon. You don't, you wouldn't be doing justice to the biblical material if you see Peter as just an ignorant man. Yes, in Acts 4, it says they were ignorant men. In other words, they were not scholarly, learned in scholarship. But we all know there are people with a lot of horse sense and a lot of intelligence who don't happen to have a degree. I think Peter was in that, certainly in that category, and he was always listed among others. He was usually listed first, and he usually presided, and he was in many of Jesus' stories. So there's so much to be said about Peter that we just have to force ourselves to, to keep going, and we'll come back and we'll talk more about Peter. But Peter also was, he identifies himself how in this text? As a one who is sent by God. God, I was, in particular, sent by Jesus Christ. 
So that whenever you send somebody, they're an apostle. An apostle is a sent one. And the general term is used throughout, throughout the Bible, people that are sent. But this specific term, the technical term, and, and, and Peter uses, this is the, the one self-description Peter uses in this letter to begin is, I'm apostle of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ sent me, which usually means I saw the resurrected Christ and I was given a specific commission and I was given the Holy Spirit and I'm a witness to the resurrection. And oh, and by the way, I'm writing a book of the Bible here. This is Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to those elect exiles of the dispersion and again, in these regions in, in Asia Minor, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, in, relatively in a circle. And so here, are you, so just, it's fascinating to just take this introduction and think, what is Peter saying? Peter's like, I'm nobody, but I was sent by Jesus. I'm an apostle with a message from Jesus, and you are exiles. In other words, you we're rejected by the world by nature, by virtue of you being a Christ follower, you're rejected by the world. But what does he say before they're exiles? He says, you're what? Just look at your Bible and you will see it. What does he call them? You got to remember this. You are what? Pilgrims. What kind of, yeah, pilgrims. That's the exile word. And before that is, what kind of pilgrims? What do you have? You have the, my, my translation of the Bible is the ESV says, reads like this. Those who are elect exiles. And that, that's what you want to have burned in your mind. We think about, wait a minute, okay, Peter is about to encourage people who are going to go through really intense suffering. And so he says, here's what you need to know about you. You have been rejected by the world, but you are chosen by God. And the rest of this that we won't take time to teach today, it amplifies that in poetic and beautiful. It's literally a poem of beautiful, powerful, rich, theologically dense poem that flows out of that. But initially, this is what he's going to say. You, and, he, and it's pregnant with meaning. You are exiles rejected by the world, but you are elect chosen by God. This is still true of every Christian today. An exile in this world, but chosen by God. Rejected by this world but accepted by God, hated by this world, but loved by God, misunderstood by this world, but precious to God. That's kind of enough. Like we could go home right now, but we aren't going to. John Piper wrote about this and what spills out of this is a triune construction. It's going to go father, spirit, and son. And it's going to talk about past, present, and future in this little introduction to First Peter. And Piper wrote this, and I thought it was interesting. These three dimensions of election, he says, are related to a different divine person of the Trinity, each section. Our election, he said, is rooted in the foreknowledge of God the Father. Our election is experienced by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Our aim of our election is that we would obey Jesus, the Son of God. Now, you know the, the Bible speaks frequently of predestination, foreknowledge, election. In a moment, he's going to say, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Savior. That's one of those choose verses. And so Christians have probably discussed this. They have perhaps differed on this. They absolutely have differed on this. Sometimes they've even argued about this. We don't want to do any of that today. We just want to read this and understand it a bit. And, and what he's done here in this introduction is he's, in this little chunk that we're going to look at, these first two verses, is there's that clear thing he's going to talk about what, what the Father did, what the Spirit is doing, and what the Son will always do. 
That's what he's going to say. The first one, so three points, like any decent sermon. One, you are known and loved by the Father. You want to put that down. If you're a believer, even if you're being persecuted, even if you're being misunderstood, even if you're being mistreated, you are known and loved by God. You're misunderstood by the world, but you're known and loved by God the Father. The Father loves you. The Father knows you. Now, dads are full of wisdom, aren't they? We kid about dad jokes. They're not that good at humor, but they're really full of wisdom. Like my dad, he would say things like, water is essential to life because without it, you cannot make coffee. <laughs> like, that's true. Now, we know that's true. Like, my dad didn't say that. I, I kidded. This is what my dad did say. Kenny, he would say. He'd be working on the car. The car is your lifeblood, son. The car is your lifeblood. Without your car, you can't get a job. Without your job, everything goes apart. You got to keep your car running. He would just say that. He would look really serious, and, and he would say, car is your lifeblood. Without it, you can't work. My dad's father was also Kenneth, and he was a factory laborer and a pastor and a farmer. He had a little kind of hobby farm. He didn't call it that, but it was a small farm. 32 head of white, uh, Hereford white-faced beef cattle and, and enough grain and hay to feed them and, and to keep uh, us occupied baling hay and having them wonderful memories in the summer. And my dad honored his dad by going and working on the farm when he was, he was a school teacher and a pastor, my dad. So in the summer, he had some freedom to go work on the farm. And I noticed that he would go and he would labor and he would work to honor my grandfather and help him. And, and one time, my dad had a vacation, and he took the week off. I went with him to help. Um, he took the week off, and my dad alone put the roof on my grandma and grandpa's house. And all week long, he just, we just had the wonderful joy and the sweetness and the fellowship of being with grandma and grandpa, and it was so interesting to do that. Grandma kept us full in her own simple way. Not a gourmet cook, but she kept everybody full, and grandpa regaled us with story and he couldn't get on the roof by that time but my dad did after I about the time I graduated from high school my grandfather couldn't really farm anymore and he sold that farm and he had some cash probably for the first time in his life he had kind of a large amount of cash and he bought a home he had some things left over and in order to show gratefulness to my dad. My dad loved a Chrysler product. He loved a Chrysler product with a, a small or medium-sized Chrysler or Dodge or Plymouth with a slant six. My dad thought the slant six came down out of heaven on a cloud. The carburetors did not, but the engine was good. And, and he said, those are bulletproof, man. You want to get one of those. You can't tear them up. You can, I did, but dad never did. And Matter of fact, it was in the same car. But that's another story for another time that makes me look bad. And I won't tell you right now, but my grandfather bought this car, had it in his garage. It was a little Plymouth Duster. Lois, you remember this because we drove away married in this car. I remember the day my grandpa bought my dad that car. It was so sweet to be there. My grandpa was standing there, and he opened the garage door, and he goes, what do you think, Kenny? And my dad goes, oh, dad, that's a nice car. That's a nice car. Those are good. That's probably got the slant six in it. It goes, absolutely. Oh, yeah, that was the best engine. And he goes, do you like it? He says to my dad, do you like it? And my dad goes, oh, yeah, dad, I, I love it. It's very nice. And then my, my grandpa walked over and he handed the keys to my dad. He said, that was the right thing to say. And my dad cried, you know, like you're supposed to. And he said, no, no, I can't take this. But he, but he forced it on him. <laughs> my grandpa loved my dad and my dad loved my grandpa. And my grandpa gave my dad a car. Probably one of the biggest gifts he ever gave anybody ever. 
the first time he got a little bit of extra money, he bought my dad a car and gave it to him. Guess what my dad did with that car? Gave it to me. My grandpa said, Kenny, you want to buy a car? I can help you. My dad goes, he doesn't need that. And then he kept it for a reasonable amount of time. And then he said, I want you to have it. And he gave me that car. Now, you know why that happened? Because when you have a kid, giving is not really giving. It's kind of being selfish. Because when you give to somebody you love like that, there's, there's no happier thing than to say, I want you to have this. I love you. He, fathers love their kids. Jesus said it in such a beautiful way in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? Don't you love that? I love that. Peter is reminding the people, I know that you've been rejected by people, but there is a God and he's your father and he's generous and he loves you. And he, and this is, the foreknowledge word means loved ahead of time. He set his love upon you. This is what he did. The, the foreknowledge, some people say, oh, I know what that means. It's like prescience. It means he just knew ahead of time. No, no, it means so much more than that. That, that definition is inadequate to describe what foreknowledge in the Bible means. And he, here's how we know that. Read all the places where it's used, and it doesn't work as just he knows ahead of time. It means he set his love, his sovereign love, his electing love on you ahead of time. This is what the scriptures teach very clearly. God chooses to do something ahead of time. This is sometimes called foreknowledge. God shows ahead of time that Jesus would die on the cross. This is re referred to in Acts 2, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. And what's the next word? Foreknowledge of God. You see, foreknowledge in the Bible doesn't just mean he knew ahead of time. It means he put his love on you ahead of time. And this is how he used it. Sam Storms writes this. To foreknow is to forelove. That God foreknew. This is going to get so good. You want to hear this part. That God foreknew us is but another way of saying that he set his gracious, merciful regard on us. That he knew us from eternity past with a sovereign, distinguishing delight. God's foreknowledge is an active, creative work of divine love. It's not bare prevision, which merely recognizes a difference between men who believe and men who do not believe. God's foreknowledge creates that difference. Foreknowledge is destiny shaping, Sam Storms said. Speaking about God's foreknowledge is a way of expressing his eternal commitment to individuals as a part of his determination to bring them to faith and, and all the glories and the benefits of Christ's work. God's divine initiative in pursuing you has been operative from eternity past, long before you had any awareness of God or even a thought about pursuing him. Now, somebody else said it even in a more beautiful and poetic way than that, the famous Baptist, uh, Victorian-era Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, in his autobiography, he wrote this. In, a very, in the very beginning, when this great universe lay in the mind of God, like unborn forest in the acorn cup, long before the echoes awoke the solitudes, before the mountains were brought forth, and long before the light flashed through the sky, God loved his chosen creatures. Before there was any created thing, when the ether was not fanned by an angel's wing, when space itself had not been not in existence, where there was nothing save God alone, even then, in that loneliness of deity, in that deep, quiet profundity, his heart moved with love for his chosen. Their names were written on his heart, and then 
were they dear to his soul. Jesus loved his people before the foundation of the world, even from eternity. And when he called me by his grace, he said to me, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore with loving kindness I have drawn thee. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, he's talking about election, predestination, God's sovereignty. Aren't those controversial? Please allow me to worship God with this, and let's not think about argument. Let's not think about controversy. Let's just think about worshiping God for what he says in his word right now. There was an exchange between Charles Simeon, who's kind of known as a Calvinist, and John Wesley, who was known as a well, they didn't know him as a Wesleyan, but his name was Wesley. You get it, right? So there was an exchange between this famous fellow who often was called a Calvinist, Charles Simeon, pastor of the Trinity Church Cambridge for like 40-some years. And somebody said, oh, I know you're a Calvinist. And he had a conversation. So Charles Simeon, whose faith was robust, had a conversation with John Wesley. And Simeon records it, and I want you to hear it, because this is the heart of the Bethel Church when it comes to when we don't agree on things like this, but we love to look into them. And we don't land in the exact same place, all of us, but we love to look into them. And we love to cause, we love for those things, those big things about God to cause us to worship God. We don't have to agree on all the details of them, but we really should pay attention when the Bible says something a lot. And so here's what he says, and I'm going to report this exchange between Charles Simeon and John Wesley in the words of Charles Simeon. Sir, I understand that you are called Arminian, and I have sometimes been called Calvinist, and therefore I suppose we are to draw daggers but before I consent to begin combat, with your permission, I will ask you a few questions, not from impertinent curiosity, but for real instruction. Pray, sir, do you feel yourself a depraved creature? So depraved that you would never have thought of turning to God if God had not first put it in your heart. And Wesley answers, yes, indeed, I do. And you despair of recommending yourself to God by anything that you can do and look for salvation solely through the blood and the righteousness of Christ? Yes, Wesley answered, yes, solely through Christ. But sir, supposing you were first saved by Christ, are you not somehow or other to save yourself afterwards by your own works? No, no, Wesley answered, no, I must be saved by Christ from first to last. Allowing then that you were first turned by grace, by the grace of God, are you not in some way or another to keep yourself by your own power? No, Wesley said. What then? Are you to be upheld every hour and every moment by God? As much as an infant in his mother's arms, Wesley said, yes, altogether. And is all your hope in the grace and mercy of God to preserve you into a heavenly kingdom? And Wesley's answer, yes, I have no hope but him. And listen to Simeon's answer. And I commend it to you, uh, Bethel people, no matter what side of that, no matter how you understand the election passages of the Bible, I commend you to Simeon's answer. Then, sir, with your leave, I will put away my dagger. For this is all my Calvinism, this is my election, this is my justification by faith, this is my final perseverance. It is in substance all that I hold, and therefore, if you please, instead of searching out terms and phrases to be a ground of contention between us, we will cordially unite in those things wherein we agree. Is that beautiful? That's beautiful. That's what Lois and I do. <laughs> Seriously, isn't that right? It's so what we do. That is so what we do. We have things that we agree on, and they're bedrock. There are things to die for. Everything else we disagree on. Different teams, different views on this. We literally have a different view of this. She will have my view one day when she's with the Lord. But right now, she's all confused. So we, 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 uh, we, we talk about this, and we don't necessarily see it the exact same way. 
So here's my challenge. Put up your dagger and pick up your Bible. Don't argue. Worship. Don't, you don't have to have the final answer. We'll get the final answer someday. Maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe I'll be right. Maybe we'll both be wrong. <laughs> but this is, the, this is the point. Put up your dagger and your arguments. That, let's not do that. Pick up your Bible. I encourage you to explore wherever the Bible talks about this doctrine of chosen or predestined or election, the passages in the Bible. Make a study of them. Don't study them to support how you feel or what you think. Study them in the light of the rest of the Bible. Don't try to make them fit your preconceived ideas. Don't, I don't intend to kneel on your shoulders and try to shove these doctrines down your throat. I wouldn't think of it. They're truths of God. I would just lay them on the table and I walk out of the room so you can explore them without pressure and you can take or leave them. But listen to this what I want to tell you about this. And listen to this carefully. This is so important. This I will tell you. There is no sweeter comfort when you're confronted by evil or when you're experiencing betrayal or when you're enduring hardship than the knowledge that the sovereign God of the universe doesn't let anything reach your life that hasn't passed through his fingers first. Now, however you, whatever you want to call yourself, whatever you want to label yourself or label other people, cling to the sovereignty of God, that he is over all, that he is the king of kings. And that, and that, that the, the things that people mean for evil, he can turn for good. He, listen, the knowledge of the sovereign governance of God over the universe, your enemies and the very details of your own life, down to the numbers of your days, how many hairs you have. You are chosen, cherished by God. This is what Peter starts with. He says, okay, I know you're, you're exiles, but you are elect. However you understand it, you are chosen by God. You are precious to God. God is your father. God has loved you from before the foundation of the earth. Don't try to understand it. Just receive it and worship him and thank him. And yes, you will have people who hate you, but God loves you. There will be people who misunderstand you, but God loves you. This is awesome. That's point number one. Point number two is shorter. You're being sanctified by the Spirit. You're troubled, but the Spirit is at work in you. He's setting you apart to be more like Him through an ongoing process of sanctification. This is an encouragement, right? Because we're thinking, I'm not what I ought to be. No, you're not, but, you're, but God is helping you become that way. The Holy Spirit is at work in every believer in the process of sanctification. In some of our traditions, we see it as a crisis. In some of our traditions, we see it as a process. I think really sound, experienced biblical Christians recognize that both things are true. You can just slowly grow in the Lord, and then every once in a while, He can just hit you with some wonderful forward thrust of sanctification when you least expect it and give you the victory over something. I've experienced myself a number of times, but usually it's a slugfest with the devil, right? But it's the Holy Spirit who works in us like that. By the Spirit, we're set apart unto God as holy and growing in holiness. That's why he says this, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, which leads to obedience, the sprinkling of the blood. So in the Old Testament, we learn that God is absolutely holy, and he demands absolute holiness. It's heavy to read. You, you see a hint of like, but there is that lamb, but God is holy and demands absolute holiness. And we get to the end of that and think we're completely undone, which is exactly where we should be. But then the New Testament begins, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the Holy Spirit comes and baptizes, infills every believer, according to the Bible, every believer, if you're, you have, don't have the Spirit, you're none of His, Romans chapter 8. So to, have, to be a believer is to have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. This is amazing truth that I'm possessed by, 
I know I have indwelling sin. I know I have remaining sin. I know I fail. But the Holy Spirit lives in me and whispers God's will to me and reminds me of God's word. And he's going to finish what he started. That's what the Bible says. That's pretty encouraging. Yeah, the world is against you, but the Holy Spirit is for you. And you're rejected by the world, but you're elected by God. So this is good. Number three, you are continuously cleansed by the Son as you live in obedience to Him. It's just common. What, what does a Christian want to do? Obey God. Do what He says. What if I fail? He's cleansed you with His blood. There's this continual cleansing. It's like, it's arranged this way, Father, Spirit, Son, past, present, future. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God in time before the foundation of the world. Holy Spirit working in us even when we fail continually and always will be cleansed by the, by the blood of Jesus, our righteousness is in him. When I was a boy, my dad was starting a church in Wayland, Michigan, and my dad and mom, and he was starting a church in Wayland, Michigan, and he had a little podium, and he had a little church meeting place in the basement of a, of a, um, a, a post office in Wayland. And they used it to kind of drink and play pool on Saturday nights and smoke. And so we went in there on Sunday morning early and we swept up the cigarette butts and mopped up the floor and, and we set up the chairs. Uh, church planters, kids know how to set up chairs. So we're set, we would set up the chairs. My dad would have his little stand and my mom would play the piano later. It would be the accordion, which is pretty cool. She sometimes even played the accordion pregnant. It has nothing to do with my message, but I needed to put that in there. Um, but my dad was preaching and uh, and... He was getting to the end, and I was eager um, for it to end. And he was getting to the end of his message, and uh, toward the end of his message, he would usually give a come forward invitation. Uh, and, and that particular morning, I, I felt like going forward, but not because I was under conviction, but because the bathroom was, was beyond where my dad was speaking, and I, I needed badly to go to the bathroom. And so during that time, I went up and past my dad and my mom, who's occupied playing the piano, my dad, who's occupied giving the invitation, use the restroom. This is going to get ugly, so hang on. And then when I was finished using the restroom, there was no toilet paper. And by the time my mom found me, my blue, my light blue jacket that she made me was, was soiled badly. And um, it's really badly soiled. And, and I was just a little boy, maybe five. And I was a mess. I'll never forget my mom coming, and she's like, couldn't find me. I'm just, I'm going to stay here until they come and get me because I, I can't go out like this. And it was bad. And finally, my mom, you know, they get done talking to everybody, then they're looking for me. Find my, my mom comes back to see me. She says what she said hundreds of times. She opens the door. She looks at me. She goes, oh, Kenny. And then she closed the door. And that's the last I ever saw my mother. No, it's not true, right? That's not true, right? She closed the door, and it seemed like forever. Now, she's probably out there going, do I just throw the jacket away or just throw the boy away? Let's start over. Start over with a new boy. This, this kid, he's an idiot. You know, he's, he's, he's this is embarrassing. But that door opened back up, and we never saw that jacket again. But guess what? I'm precious to my mom. That's not the last mistake I made. Over and over again, when you love somebody, you don't throw them away. You clean them up and you keep them. And that's what God is saying to you. you your relationship with God doesn't depend on how clean you are. It depends on how clean Jesus is. That's what the sprinkling thing means. Your relationship, your security, so the world is against you, and you also know you're a sinner. And, you, you know, and, and they're going to persecute you, and you wonder sometimes, did I deserve it? But you need to remember that 
We don't persevere because of our righteousness, but because of his. That's what that sprinkling thing is about. So think, we're exile, but we're elect. People have rejected us, but the Father knows us and loves us and chooses us. We're exiles, but we're elect. The world around us, dark forces within us, our remaining sin, always want to drag us back into sin, but the Holy Spirit is going to sanctify us. We're exiles, but we're elect, right? You're haunted by your own faults. You're haunted by your own failures, but you need to be taken up with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The world is more and more against me, but God is always and has always been for me if I am in Christ. So when things are hard, it really helps to know who you are and where you came from and where you're going. That's why Peter starts this way. And when people understand that, Peter did something that you might easily overlook right at the end of this greeting. He gives this little blessing. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. When he uses elect, when he uses dispersion, he's taking revered Jewish terms and he's putting them on Gentiles because that's what Peter did. He's always appealing how the Gentiles are saved too. The Gentiles are speaking in tongues too. The Gentiles are saved just like us. Remember his experience with Cornelius? Like, I'm not going over there. I'm not eating unclean meat. It'd be like, Jesus giving me a beer. I'm not taking that. My, my mama would kill me. Right? Peter, okay, you can forget that last illustration because you're all frowning at me. Just imagine the sheet coming down out of heaven and this unclean meat to this Jewish boy. Jesus is preparing Peter to go to the Gentiles. Peter's writing now to Jews and Gentiles in the church of Christ. And he says, you're elect, just like the Jews were elect. You're dispersed, kind of like the Jews were dispersed. And then he says grace and peace. And he uses the Greek term. The common Greek term would be the grace term. And the common Hebrew term would be the peace term. And he puts them together. Isn't it sweet? Grace and peace. And he doesn't say, I want you to have a little bit of it. What does he say? Be multiplied to you. So when hard times come, or maybe you're going through some hard times right now, how can we be confident that grace and peace will be multiplied to us? We remember whose we are, that we're loved by the Father before the foundation of the world, that the Holy Spirit cherishes us and is, is indwelling us and, un, and is uniquely at work in us, that we're obedient to Jesus, and, and when we're not, He continually cleanses us with His blood forever and always will. And those are the kind of people that grace and peace is multiplied to them, no matter what they go through. A couple of things before we go home today. We always have a prayer team, we have prayer, prayer partners, we call them, that come to the front of the auditorium. And that's because you may want somebody to pray with you, or, or you may not know where you stand with the Lord. You may need personal counsel or some encouragement. Sometimes you just need somebody to listen to what you're going through and pray with you. And we got good people here who care about you. They're going to come to the front of the auditorium. As Joe Sexton, one of our elders, is going to come and bless us. But they're going to come to the front of the auditorium, and then you can go back and have fellowship back there, or you can come up here and have somebody pray with you. Can I suggest one more thing? Because I have two minutes before 12. You, you take your Bible, and you read First Peter ahead of time. My sermons will be 10 times more interesting than if you wait until afterward. It'll make me interesting, even me. Because you'll think, what does this mean? What's God saying here? Read it ahead. Study ahead. Study First Peter. You know the chunk that we're going to next goes through verse 12. And I will, if you want to be enriched in the Lord, study that ahead and then come to church next week. Even talk it over with other people and then come to church next week. 
The Bible study fellowship meets here. We have other ladies groups. We have ladies prayer groups. The Bible study fellowship is not our church, but ladies meet here. Somebody's ranting and raving about Bible study fellowship a few years ago. I'm like, what's the deal? I've done Bible study with people all my life, and they don't pack the auditorium for it. What am I doing wrong? And they were like, you don't understand. I go, is it because they have dynamic speakers? They said, no, that's not it. I go, what's the secret of everybody's so fired up about this? They go, it's really simple. They study ahead of time. Every day they take a chunk of the passage. They study ahead of time. And then when they get together, they study in a small group. And then they have somebody speak about it. And then they study after that. I was like, that's it? Yeah. It's like, well, you wouldn't have to be in Bible study fellowship to do that. You could, you could do that with just your own plain vanilla pastors preaching on Sunday and Bible study fellowship. Joe, come and pray, or I'm just going to go on and on here. All right. It was a blessing.